open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. This is our last Sunday in Romans before we take a break. Uh, next Sunday will obviously be 2028, and then we're going to get into our summer series in worship. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 uh, in Romans chapter 7. Uh, am I the only person, or uh, do some of you find that um, rules just kind of bug you a little bit? They just kind of get under your skin. If you're walking down a sidewalk, like I was at Wash U last weekend, I was going to do a wedding in Graham Chapel, and it said, turf under repair, please walk on the sidewalk. And I just felt compelled that I had to put one foot off the sidewalk in the grass as I walked. I don't know. Is, there, is, is it only me, or does, is there anybody else that looks at like stop signs and, and speed limit signs as like suggestions, but not necessarily hard and fast rule? Um, why is it that if, if, if you're a parent of a younger child and they won't brush your teeth, the way to get them to brush your teeth is to say, don't you ever brush your teeth again? Why is it that there's just something in our nature that even if we, you know, maybe not as blatant as, as, as me, maybe I'm the real reprobate in the group, which wouldn't be a surprise, but there's just something that wants us to push back against the rules. Somebody says, you know, I understand we got to have the law, but I really don't care for it a whole lot. Now, the folks at Outback Steakhouse have made a huge uh, uh, marketing uh, splash with their whole deal of getting you to come and, and have a steak there because if you go to Outback Steakhouse, there are no rules. It's just right. Okay, exactly. So if you really want to have a great experience, go someplace where there are no rules. What is it about us that, that causes us to think that way? Paul's been teaching through the first... Uh, five chapters of Revelation. God's plan for salvation is not through us keeping the law, not through us obeying all the rules, because as we're going to see in just a few minutes, and as he's already shown us in the, in the earlier passages, that's an impossibility for us to do. Rather, Paul is sharing with us that, that through Christ Jesus, salvation comes to you and to me by grace. It's a free gift of God. It's not something we earn. It's not something toward which we work. Rather, it is simply a gift that God gives us, and it is received through faith. It's not received through effort. It's not received through uh, family standing. It's not received through how much money you have in your bank account. It's received by trusting that you can't earn your way into heaven, but God grants you this grace and this mercy that you don't deserve in Christ Jesus alone. Well, as Paul has been teaching this, like any good teacher, he's thinking ahead a little bit, and he's kind of wondering, now, what are the folks who are going to read this letter? What are the folks who are going to study this? What will be some of their objections to this teaching? And I want to review that just real quickly with you this morning, because Paul tosses out in chapter 6 and 7 three rhetorical questions as he's anticipating how you and I might respond to this idea of God's grace. The first question he, he asks is in the first verse of chapter 6, and I'll, I'll just read it for you. It says this, What shall we say? Are, do we continue, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? In other words, if God really wants to be gracious, if, if that's his deal, if, if he really is all about grace, then I know how I can help. I'll go sin a whole bunch more so he can be that much more gracious. And so the idea there is that, that more sin on my part will make God even more gracious. I'll help God really look good. And Paul says, well, that's foolish. God doesn't give us grace so that we have license to sin. He gives us grace so that we will actually enjoy uh, in, in thankfulness, in, in, uh, in passionate uh, gratitude, enslave ourselves to Christ. The second idea he looks at is found in the 15th verse of chapter 6, where he says, what shall we say now? 
Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So this is a little bit of a twist on that idea, but basically it goes something like this. The law no longer has dominion over me. I'm not under its condemnation, so I can now go do whatever I want to. So it's kind of another pathway to be free to sin. And again, Paul says, no, coming out from under the law does not give you a license to go do uh, all the evil you can possibly muster up. Rather, it again, it allows you the freedom to align yourself with Christ and his kingdom and his priorities and his passions. Well, the third question that he anticipates is what we're going to look at in our passage today. And the reason I kind of started off by saying, why do the rules bug us a little bit? Because the the third idea goes something along the lines of, if if grace frees us from the law, well, then there's something wrong with the law to begin with. Law must be bad. So uh, no rules, just right, right? That's the question. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, hear the word of God. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, if we we were to tell the truth... There are probably many of us in this room that would admit that we really don't care a whole lot for the rules. If it says don't run, we want to run. If it says walk, we want to run. If it says don't go on the grass, we want to go on the grass. (laughs) It says 55, we want to go 65. Father, there's just something innate in us. Maybe we can't even quite understand it ourselves that we want to set the rules and we want to make them favorable to what we want to do. We want to author the standard because then we can give ourselves a little bit of leeway when we don't get it quite right. Father, we often look at the law as something negative, and yet Paul is going to try to help us understand that it's actually something much, much deeper than that, that there's a very specific purpose for which you gave us the law, and and that intention will carry itself out. So, Lord, as we look at this passage, I think it, it, it can maybe be uh, somewhat difficult to wrap our minds around. It may be uh, hard for us to follow the logic. So, Lord, I can't do justice to this passage. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and, and open our hearts and our minds. Lord, you know my sin. You know I fall short. You know that, that if my life is the example, we are all in big trouble. So, Lord, I pray that your true word, your powerful word, your Holy Spirit, would move in this place. As folks have gathered here, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears, help us understand your truth. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I want to give you four observations out of this passage that have to do with this whole question of what is the purpose of the law. Uh, if, If you, like me, kind of push back against it a little bit, 
we may be surprised to learn that there's, there's a great benefit for our souls that God intended by giving us the law. Now, when Paul is talking about the law, he isn't talking about the U.S. Constitution. He isn't talking about uh, a man-made law. He's talking about the Mosaic law that's found in the Old Testament, uh, specifically in, in the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, the law. Uh, and in particular for our purposes, if we want to be able to kind of to, uh, to think about this clearly, probably the part of the law that's the most familiar with us is the Ten Commandments. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Don't have any other gods before me. Uh, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. Paul mentions that one. Uh, that is not the entirety of the law, but it's a summation of the law. So for our purposes this morning, what we're trying to discern is why God gave the law, what's the purpose, and how does it apply to our lives. So hopefully these four observations will move us in that direction. My first observation is that we need to see the clarifying nature of God's law. In verse 7 and 8, Paul says, what shall we say, that the law is sin? Of course not. And then he says this, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced to me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What Paul, what Paul is saying there is that God is clarifying for us good and evil. God wants to make sure that we understand right from wrong. And so what does the law do? The law comes and it helps identify sin. It helps us be able to put a framework and an understanding around that which is offensive to God. Knowing good from evil or, or, or knowing right from wrong, okay, God gives us uh, the law to confirm that, that his uh, righteousness is true and perfect, but it also does something else. If the, if the law shows me uh, sin, it must mean that it's identifying sin in my own heart. In other words, God clarifies, if we go back, say on that page for just a minute, um, God is clarifying my true condition. And Paul gives a personal example, which we'll get to in just a minute. But the reason God gives the law, one of the reasons God gives the law is not only to show his perfection, but to show my imperfection, to show that I am not as spiritually well conditioned as I thought I, I was. In fact, I have a spiritual dilemma on my hands. I can, I can not solve this problem. Now, God is very clear to, to say and, and to make this point that his law is given that we might, not, we might know this difference. We might understand good from evil, and all of a sudden we're identifying with the evil and say, wow, I see a little bit more of that than, than I wanted to, and that doesn't feel good. It, it isn't an emotionally uh, enlightening experience to discover that you're a sinner. When's the last time you kind of looked in the mirror and you saw that something was really pretty morally flawed about yourself and you went, boy, that's just great information to have. I'm so excited now that I know that about myself. But let me flip the question on, on its head and kind of look the other way. When was the last time that not knowing something was helpful to you? When was the last time where there was a piece of information, even if it was negative, that you didn't know that, that was actually helpful that you didn't know it? So you got a ping in your, in your engine. you got a little knock in your engine. And, and you go home, and you sit in the driveway, and you turn your car off, and you say, well, tomorrow I hope it won't be there. <laughs> and you don't know what it is. You have no idea. You turn on tomorrow, it's gone, right? No. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. You need to find out the heart of the problem. 
I went to, to, to my doctor a while back and got a checkup, and my blood pressure was high. And I've never had high blood pressure in my life. My blood pressure is always like 120 over 78 or something really good like that. And my doctor starts to get a little nervous. He's like, we've got to run some tests. We've got to put you on the treadmill. We and I said, okay, doc, wait just a second. I'm going to this other doctor you knew about. He's given me this medicine, and the medicine he gives me is from people that are mean-spirited and don't like the rest of us having fun. He's like, what do- medicine is that? It's that medicine that makes you focus on the details, right? So I'm kind of footloose and, and free and having a great time, and I don't really care that much about the details. And so these mean doctors came up with this medicine that made me care about the details. And that made my blood pressure go up. And he goes, you're out of your mind. I said, well, that might be true, uh, but I think that might be the deal. He goes, no, we're going we're gonna to put you on the treadmill. So I go back a few days later. Well, the morning I went to see my doctor the first time, stay with me, this has a point. <laughs> I had taken a full dose of my medication, okay? Friday when I go to get on the treadmill, I didn't take any medicine. And the comes in, puts my arm in the sleeve, right? Pumps it up. She goes, why are we checking you for high blood pressure? Thank you. I didn't go to, I didn't go to medical school. You know, I play a doctor on TV. I like, it was the medicine. But you know what? It was good to find that out. It was really good to find that out. If you have high blood pressure, that's life-threatening. When's the last time you didn't know something negative that was true and it was helpful to you? God says, I love you too much not to tell you the truth. My doctor cared enough about me to make sure I got this checked out and make sure there wasn't something serious. God isn't telling us, friends, this morning that that the law shows us our true condition. It clarifies for us who we really are apart from God's grace because God is vindictive or because God is angry, but it's because he loves us and he is compassionate and he wants to show us our need for a Savior. And that's what the law clarifies. The law clarifies for you and for me that guess what? We're lawbreakers. And we live that way naturally. But Paul interrupts himself for just a minute in chapter 7 and 8 to make sure that we understand he's not preaching at us but talking to us. And he gives us what I call uh, kind of a pastoral comment in the midst of this passage. What I want you to notice here is simply how Paul talks in the first person. Okay? Paul says, I would not have known sin if it wasn't for the law. I would not have known what is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. And then he says that the sin seizing this opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, Paul uses the example of covetousness. It's the 10th commandment, Exodus chapter 20. Covet simply means uh, I see that you have something, and I'm not happy that you have it. Uh, I really think I deserve it more than you. And, and I begin to, to place a moral, uh, a moral label on the fact that you have it and I don't, and that's wrong to me. And so I'm going to figure out some way that I can get my hands on it. The best example in Scripture of this is probably King David who was supposed to be off fighting a war, right, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but he stayed behind in Jerusalem and all his buddies went off to fight. And one of the commandments, thou shalt not covet, the way it goes, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's manservant nor your maidservant or the cattle that is in his field or anything that belongs to your neighbor. David looks out on his neighbor's roof and there's his neighbor's wife. And he calls up when nobody's around, brings her over, has relationships with her, gets her pregnant just because he thought he deserved to have her because he was the king. Well, then he finds out she's pregnant, brings her husband home, tries to get him to drink too much and send him home so that he will have relations with his wife and think that he got her pregnant, right? And even in a a state where the guys had a lot to drink, he says, there's no way in the world I'm going home when my fellow soldiers are out in the field risking their lives for our safety. I'm not going home and sleeping with my wife. And he slept in the alleyway outside his house. And so David sent a note back to the commander saying, Uriah is the guy's name. Put Uriah in the front of the battle and have him killed. Because he coveted the guy's wife. 
And Paul picks that sin probably because it was a sin in his own heart. And Paul said, I want you to know, friends, I'm talking about me too. I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law hadn't shown me. But then I saw all kinds of covetousness produced within me. I appreciate Paul's pastoral comment because it gives me great hope as well. Paul isn't pointing to himself and saying, just be like me. He's saying, I need a Savior as much as you need a Savior. And the, and the clarifying nature of God's law had done its work in Paul's heart, and he saw that he was separated from God and in need of a Savior. The third observation after Paul's pastoral comment is that there is an unavoidable outcome of God's law. Look at verses 9 uh, through 11. We'll take them one at a time. In verse 9, Paul writes, I was once alive apart from law. That's kind of a way of saying I was blissfully ignorant. Uh, before the law came, I didn't really know all the stuff I was, I was doing wrong. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I can't plead ignorance anymore. I, I can't say I didn't know the truth because the, raw, the law reveals my true identity. It reveals my true nature for what it really is. So when I saw the commandment, all of a sudden I saw my life through the lens of the commandments. I went, oh my goodness, I'm breaking all kinds of laws. And that's the self-discovery that Paul had, an unavoidable outcome of God's law. If you read Scripture and you read the ordinances of God and you don't see page after page after page where you fail in them, you either have the worst case of self-denial in the world or I don't know what. I don't know how to explain it other than to say when you read the beauty of God's glory and then you look at your own life, I will speak for myself. I see how far short I fall and I can't plead ignorance. I can't say I didn't know. Paul goes on to say in verse 10 that another unavoidable outcome is that we can never live up to the commandments. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. If you look at Paul's life before he became a Christian, he spent all of his time trying to keep the law. He spent all of his life trying to live exactly the way he thought he was supposed to live. But what he found out was he couldn't keep the commandments perfectly. He couldn't do that which was commanded, and he always fell short to the place where it literally felt like death to him. Uh, a lot of you know that Cindy and I went through a, a course called Sonship, which was very uh, powerful in our lives uh, back in the mid-90s. And I was at a session one time, <clears throat> the guy, one of the Sonship teachers was talking about the gospel and grace, and, and he talked about a conference that they had done in Moscow, and they had this little exercise uh, at the beginning of the week where they said to everybody, now, for the next week, while the, this conference is going on, uh, we want you to do one thing. We want you to not say a bad word about anybody or anything. Uh, no gossip, no slander, no complaining, uh, you know, no fussing at one another. We want you to just make sure you don't say anything negative for just, for, for just one week, just the week of this conference. And they sent them all out. He said they came back at the end of the week, and he said, okay, now I, I just want to clarify, is there anybody in the room that was able to accomplish this? If so, raise your hand. And one guy in the middle of the room raised his hand. And this had never happened before. And the guy said, you've, you've not said a bad word to anybody all week. And the guy went, he goes, you've not complained once all week long. And I went, he said, you have not gossiped about one other person this entire week. And I went, he goes, how did you do that? And he goes, these are the first words I've spoken since you told us not to do that last week. <laughs> <laughs> you can't keep the law. You always fall short. 
the commandment that promises life actually shows you how spiritually dead you really are. The third unavoidable outcome is found in verse 11, where Paul says, Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. What the law does is it identifies our true motives in our heart. When we see the commandment, sin comes right along beside it, and it shows me how much I am not going to keep the commandment. So the law says, uh, you shall, right? You shall honor the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall uh, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I stand back and I go, I most certainly will not. Nobody's going to tell me what I'm going to do on a Sunday. If I want to go out and play, I'm going to go out and play. And the law says, you shall not. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. And I say, oh yeah, watch me. Tell me what I can do and what I can't do. If I want to shade the truth a little bit to make it to my advantage, then you just watch me go right ahead and do this. And it produces within us this spiritual death that consumes us. St. Augustine, who was one of the great church fathers, wrote a story about when he was a little boy and about this kind of, you know, tell me not to do it and watch me do it. Uh, And I'll read it for you real quickly. He talks about a pear tree that was near their house. And he says, some of, we, some of us who were rascally youths, I like, we don't use that term anymore, rascally youths. Remember the, the little rascals that were on TV? We set out to rob and carry off the pears from the pear tree. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them at the pigs, though we ate just enough to have pleasure of the forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted. For I had plenty of pears at home that were actually better. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. Where it was, um, excuse me, what was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under the rules, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. The unavoidable outcome of the law is that it leads us to death because we see that, it, it, that our very nature fights against it. Thankfully, Paul doesn't end in verse 11. He writes verse 12, and he points out the glorious hope of God's law. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Now, I've given you a definition of these three words below uh, to make sure we, we understand them. Holy means to be set apart, to be above. So when we say God is holy, what we say is he's not common like us. He, he doesn't have the same limitations. He doesn't have the same flaws. God, God is holy. He is above us. He is, he is better than us in, in every way possible. The word righteous means that, that uh, moral perfection. So the law of God is perfect. There are no flaws in the law. We can't say the law was written in a wrong way. If it had been written correctly, I would have been able to follow it. No, the law is righteous. The commandment is righteous. There's nothing wrong with the commandment. And the third word that Paul uses to describe the law and the commandment is good, which means a proper intent of the heart. Now, here's where we have to go with chapter uh, uh, 7, verse 12. Paul is describing the law, but he's also describing something else. He's describing the one who wrote the law. God is just, uh, Paul is describing not just the law, not just the commandment, but he's describing the law giver. All of these 
things, holiness, righteousness, goodness, don't just point to the law, but they point to the nature of our God. He is completely holy. He is completely righteous, and he is completely good. Think about this with me for a minute. Why would God give us the law if all it was meant to do was to show us how pitiful we were? That would not be grace. That would not be mercy. That would be cruelty. It's cruel to to show someone what they cannot have. It's cruel to say to someone, well, I'm just telling you the truth and you can never do anything about us, but here's your problem. That's not motivated out of love or grace or mercy. If if you're rubbing someone's face in it, so to speak, that's not because you're being compassionate to them. It's because you have some kind of, you're vindictive against them in some way, kind of like we are with Cubs fans, right? I mean, that's such an easy target. I had a guy on the radio the other day goes, what's that smell? Oh, the, the Cubs are in town. They stink. I, I, you know, that's not very nice. Now, we kind of like that because we're from St. Louis. But that's cruel. I mean, I mean you're, we have no kind thought in our hearts when we joke like that. And if you're from Chicago, I, I kind of apologize, but not really. Um, <laughs> but what if God were like that? You're such a sinner, and I just want you to know that. That's it. See you later. He wouldn't be a good God. The hope is in verse 12, friends, because the law reflects the lawgiver. And he shows us our brokenness, not because he rejoices in our brokenness, but because he wants to heal us. He wants to be compassionate with us. He understands that Jesus came and met the demand of the law for us. And so he shows us our need not to be cruel, but to demonstrate the seriousness of the crisis that we have in our hearts and to warn us against thinking that we can save ourselves and to drive us to the cross of Christ and the glorious grace and mercy that is ours at that place. The last song we sang before uh, we concluded our, our first set of worship was Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, fall I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. And the Savior says, come and I will wash you. You come to me, I'll make all things new. I've kept the law for you. You need to see it. You need to understand it, friend, that, that the law reflects what a serious lawbreaker you really are, but it also gives you the opportunity not to bristle against it, not to say no rules, just right. That's a lie. But to know that the God of the law is a God who has fulfilled the law. And he shows us not only our need for Christ, but he provides the Savior who is Jesus, that every lawbreaker in this room could know salvation and grace and mercy and life. Let's pray.